In the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is shown as the true King of all creation who ushers in the Kingdom of Heaven. Matthew's Gospel also gives us a clear and powerful picture of discipleship with all of Jesus' radical demands on his followers in this hostile world. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Gracious and merciful God, now that your word is read, now as it is preached, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, and that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow, in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. About 10 years ago, I was uh, watching a Dateline NBC, and I don't usually um, give too much credence to um, network investigators, but they were doing an expose on a faith healer and a televangelist by the name of Betty Hinn. Some of you guys might have heard of him. And you know, a lot of times the network investigators are biased against Christians. Um, but after just watching for a little bit, I was still at the end dumbfounded by this uh, gullibility of so many people who go to watch this entertainer, Benny Hinn and the likes, accepting his claim as a prophet of God while ignoring his doctrinal heresies, ignoring what scripture clearly, clearly teaches us, and at the same time pouring over $100 million into his coffer. Um, you look at, well, this was over 10 years ago, his $3.5 million home with a 10-car garage, his collection of Mercedes along with his sports cars, his designer suits, and $1,000 a night hotel suites, all paid for by his ministry. And um, I think you would think a, a thinking person uh, would raise some red flags um, although compared to his false teachings, um, this is nothing. Those are far more flagrant if you think of them and consider them. Now, whether you're talking about a celebrity um, of sorts like politicians coming to town or a musician or an actor or an actress or an athlete or a televangelist, there's always a kind of an advanced team uh, that arrives first to check out the venue, um, to hire the production crew, to arrange the flights, the hotels, the limo, and the security team, depending on how of a uh, threat they, they think they might experience uh, while there. All of this, along with the publicity team and more, to create the best possible successful event. Um, some of you guys may remember back 2016, when um, uh, former president, um, Today's uh, former President Barack Obama came to uh, New Brunswick to give the 250th um, commencement address at Rutgers University and all the uh, challenges some of us experienced in going to campus and the limitations that many experienced. There were hundreds of people, probably thousands of people who went before and during to make that event uh, a possibility. Now, we, we're going to walk through these three kind of uh, bullet points from chapter three of Matthew. And the first point in examining the ministry of John, we look at verse one. Um, we move from the birth and his return from the exile back and now fast forward some 30 years into in those days. 
and we hear the name John the Baptist, the first time we hear his name in the book of Matthew, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And remember, this was just the same back in the first century. The more famous the person, the more important the person, uh, the more extensive the advanced team that would come. And it was the same, if, if not more, for a celebrity king uh, back in those times. And here, you know, we have a herald who was appointed. And back in those days, just the same, a herald would come and kind of the publicity team um, tell the people about the arrival of the king who's going to come. And in addition, you have a team of servants who literally come and prepare the road, removing any clutters that might hinder the, the travel to filling up the pothole so that the roads would be ready so that they can both proclaim and prepare. Pastor Eugene's been walking us through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've heard of the genealogy of this Savior King, how it began with the genealogy of Abraham, um, also of David, this one who will save the people, this one who has been prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, this one who's going to be greater than Moses. And for this great king, the advanced team of one has been prepared. And that's John the Baptist. All this anticipation had been building up this great king who's going to come to save the world from sin. And you have this solo by the name of John the Baptist not entering some cities, city of Jerusalem, the main hubs of the area, but in the wilderness, out of nowhere. You see, if you have a Bible and not actually we're looking through the phone, if you just flip through two pages, the last book of Old Testament, you have the Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, you see the final prophet in the Old Testament prophesying, behold, I will send, this is God's word speaking, spoken through prophet Malachi, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. So you have John the Baptist, who is really serving as this pointer to Elijah, Elijah, who's been prophesied by prophet um, Malachi. And the message that John the Baptist proclaimed is the message of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Why? Because the reign of God is near. Why? Because this king that we've been listening, hearing about, it's going to come and he's going to reign. I'm going to go deeper in the second section about the message of John. But repentance, I know Pastor Eugene, even in time of confession, just reminded us, it's really about acknowledging that we have sinned. And it postures us well to receive the forgiveness. It's a perfect set. John the Baptist is doing a perfect set for the one who is to come. And this is not a minor adjustment. It's like, I need to tweak this a little bit. No, this is a major adjustment of life. Repentance is not, let me add Jesus to just make my life a little better or a lot better. No. Repentance and coming to this Lord who came to die for sin is about total adjustment of life direction. Repent, 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist preaches, same sermon again and again. And just as Pastor Eugene mentioned in the first question, uh, first thesis of the 95 Thesis, when Jesus began his ministry, he started preaching with the same message, repent for the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven in Matthew is near. There is no good news if there is no proper acknowledgement of sin because it is sin that essentially gets atoned for by this king. In verse three, we hear the words of prophet Isaiah being repeated, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we see John the Baptist identifying himself as the prophet that Isaiah spoke of. Going back to Isaiah 40, verse three, again, the one, he is the one crying in the wilderness. He is the one preparing the way of the Lord. He is the solo one advanced team preparing the way for this Lord who has come to deal with sin. And if you go back to one previous chapter of Malachi from chapter four, verse five to chapter three, verse one, Malachi, um, these are the words that God speaks through the servant. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So you have Malachi 3.1, Malachi 4.5, and a span of 400 years that people have been waiting. The last time they heard from the Lord was through prophet Malachi who was reciting some of these prophecies of Isaiah to be fulfilled. And finally, finally they hear and we see John the Baptist fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah being repeated again in Malachi. And we see that this king is the Lord himself. You know, there are people and there are faith traditions that does not acknowledge that Jesus is God. So if you run into any Jehovah Witnesses, any Unitarians or non-Trinitarians who do not acknowledge the triune godness of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you look at here and we are clearly reminded that this Lord is God incarnate. This Jesus, the one who came to save us from our sin, is the Lord himself, eternal God who always existed, now coming as king to reign. As we move into the message of John, you look at verse four, we see this kind of a weird depiction of John the Baptist. You have this kind of a rustic man. Um, he's probably really fit. He's wearing this leather garment made of camel. He has leather belt. He's eating high protein locusts. I don't think Pastor Eugene would like it. Would you eat it? I'm not sure, but it's dipped with organic honey and it accentuates the taste. It'll probably taste a little sweeter, better. And you might think, well, is this supposed to encourage us to live this kind of austere, strict lifestyle? Not really. This is not a prescription. Now you go and live like John the Baptist. When you see John the Baptist coming into scene like this, the point is for us to realize, especially when you look at verses four through six, is to help us recognize that someone like Elijah is here. If you go back in the Old Testament time, when Elijah was a prophet, word of God was not valued. God was not feared and honored. Do you remember when Elijah was battling against 450 prophets of Baal, calling these prophets, calling on the name of their Baal God, while Elijah alone was crying out? 
When Elijah was a prophet, people did not fear God. The court, the king did not honor or sought to follow God. Now, it's not ironic and it's, not, it's of high cons- uh, consequence that when Jesus is born, the king in power, the court, as we look back and remember, they didn't fear God. They didn't honor God. They didn't want to seek the word. Even when Herod heard and met the Magi, what did he do? He brought the religious leaders and he learned that, yes, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. But instead of, wow, amazing prophecy is being fulfilled right now in my reign. Let me go and worship this Messiah too. No, let's find this one and kill him. There was no fear of the Lord There was no honoring of God or seeking to know and trust and follow the word. So when John the Baptist comes into scene wearing this garb of camel hair and eating this high protein locust, which is clean, so that's, you're allowed to eat that, dipped with wild, you know, honey, it's pointing that time is bad and time is ripe. Everything that has been prophesied now is that divine time where God would send his son. This 400 years of waiting is now being fulfilled as we look at this Elijah now in the person of John the Baptist. Now in verse five, we see people are coming out to this wilderness. People all over from Jerusalem, the city, to all of the Judea, to the region Uh, all the regions around, they're coming to this river Jordan to get baptized by John. The Jordan River wilderness, it's going to reminisce all these Jewish people coming out of their wilderness of 40 years, entering the promised land by walking through the Jordan River Remember, when the Israelites were first set free and were going through the Exodus, they left the old life, crossing the Red Sea, and entered a new beginning. The old was laid down and started a new life. And it was a miraculous journey of entering through that sea, signaling a new era, new beginning. When the first generation of the um, Israelites will all pass away with an exception of just a handful, like Joshua and Caleb, as the Israelites are finally entering the promised land, when they got to the river Jordan, and as they stepped, the river parted the way the Lord did the same with the Red Sea. They should have died, but they didn't. And they left behind the old ways of the wilderness and entered a new beginning. It's not an accident that we see John the Baptist baptizing and as we'll see Jesus himself coming to get baptized. This is a divine moment. All the previous water baptisms of death and resurrection now is getting set up for the true death and resurrection that will await the very king who's come to atone for our sins. 
In verse 6, we see these um, people getting baptized by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When you read this passage, uh, many of us growing up in church, you probably read this many times, and you're thinking, okay, people are getting baptized. But when you take a step back, and there is something so profound happening here. You see, baptism wasn't a commandment in the Old Testament. And in fact, baptism was only practiced by during the intertestamental time period between Malachi and John uh, the Baptist ministry time, okay? So during this time, it was the Gentiles, when they came to place their trust, came to re- recognize that they were sinners and they wanted to repent and um, join the Jewish faith, it was the Gentiles who would get baptized. This is different from ritual cleansing, okay, where you will get immersed So it is John the Baptist baptizing Jews like Gentiles were being baptized to come into the faith community. This is a radical, radical statement. Jews, their faith, their tradition, their heritage and thinking that Abraham, having Abraham as their father was sufficient, he's just blowing that away. He's really saying, John the Baptist is really saying that spiritual conversion of the heart is what is at stake. Many of us, perhaps like many Jews at Jesus' time, or John the Baptist's time, they felt secure, uh, secure and superior because of their heritage, because of their connection with Abraham. Remember when the Gospel of Matthew starts? Clearly, this genealogy also points out that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and David too. Remember that. But that's not sufficient. And maybe some of us here, because we grew up in a Christian family, you grew up with moms, dads, grandma, grandpas, who played a significant role in the church, or maybe even church history, we think, oh, we're, we're good. It's like, I'm good. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It requires each and every one of us to come humble, hungry, ready to receive. Why do we spend time every week confessing our sins? Because when we are acknowledging that we are sinners, that means now we are ready to receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. It's funny, though, because a lot of times we don't want to come to church and be gathered when we sin. That's all the more time we need to come because we will need that. And sometimes we will feel better coming if we, did a, if we had a good week, we didn't commit any flagrant sin. It's like, God, we might not say it, but we're thinking, it's like, oh, this was a good week. What does that mean, this was a good week? So does that mean I'm not, I don't need to receive anything from God? As Pastor Eugene reminded us, having a good week is not just about not committing offenses against God by committing sins. If you and I are honest, we sin all the time, if not more, by not doing what is good, what is loving, what is kind. 
And when we are able to accept that, admit that, then we are truly ready to receive from the one who came to atone for your sins and mine. John the Baptist was fine when Jews from the city of Jerusalem, Judea, all over the area were coming to get baptized. He, he was in his zone. He was baptizing them, telling the same message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. But when he began to see these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, now these are two of the three major religious leadership group. Um, interestingly, Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't. But here it is. Some of them are coming. They're, they heard about this, um, and they're interested, intrigued. And John the Baptist points them out. You brood of vipers, who told you about this? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? When he calls them brood of vipers, that's like as offensive as it gets. Back in the ancient times, they believed that vipers would be birthed out by eating their mothers. So when you say, you brood of vipers, you offspring of vipers, you are vicious, you are deadly, there's no good in you, how did you get here? He doesn't mince words. Just as Elijah, when he was serving as a prophet, he didn't fear confronting King Ahab, the prophets of Baal, he risked his life, and he said it as it was. John the Baptist, if you think about him, wouldn't be a very secret-sensitive speaker. Um, he spoke, he gave that one message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He prepared people to be ready for the Lord who is to come. He taught people, show food of repentance. And the charge that he gives to these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, you know what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He ch challenges them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. No cheap words, bear fruit that reflects true repentance. Pastor Eugene, during time of confession, mentioned um, um, 95 Thesis, question one. We didn't talk about this, but um, you know, we just, I know Pastor Eugene's been talking about 95 Thesis, Martin Luther. You know, we just celebrated recently the 500th anniversary of the posting of 95 Thesis. And like he mentioned, the first thesis of that 95 starts with this statement. This is the first thesis. It reads, in English translation, of course. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, referencing Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he will the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. That our entire life needs to be a life of repentance. And that's why we come every week and repent of our sins. ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, was to atone for our sin. And ministry of John the Baptist was to get people to recognize that they were sinners in need of atonement. Gospel, good news, 
It's really not gospel if we don't understand this. Now, repentance, again, going back, is about recognizing, it's about admitting that we need forgiveness of sin. It is absolutely necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, it's like posturing yourself, getting ready to receive. You are realizing that you need forgiveness and you can only receive it. You can repent 770 times or more, but repentance in and of itself cannot forgive you or me from our sins. It requires the atoning work of this king who's going to reign, who's going to go through that true death to a new life. People have had great intentions, especially in the past 10 years, different movements, people with all the good intentions have created a lot of bad results. They didn't want to offend people, so they left. They they would share the good news, but in their sharing of good news, there was no real reference for sin, no need for repentance. God is all loving. God loves you. He wants you. He wants to be with you. Yet this is just a tiny part. And by doing so, we lose the sight of the entire purpose that Jesus came to live for and die for. We were reminded in Matthew 1 that Pastor Eugene preached about that this Jesus came to save us from our sins. That's why he came. There is truly no good news if we only talk about things that just makes us feel good. True good news deals with and confronts the problem of sin by the person of Jesus Christ. John proclaimed that the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we need to understand that baptism does not forgive sin itself. I mean, we're going through the New City Catechism. I think it's really timely that we're going through the question of baptism. And only the Holy Spirit can do the work in our hearts and change us, do the work of regeneration. Only Holy Spirit can do that. What we do outwardly in the baptism is a outward symbol of what God does through the power of the Holy Spirit internally. And we are recognizing that as a church when we do do that. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? The answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, this apprehension is about grasping it, right? Does, not, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God and with full purpose, full of purpose and of endeavor after new obedience. So the motive for repentance is not just out of sorrow, but it's to mercy of God. We repent because there is a merciful God that awaits us. If we know, if we think that God is not merciful and is just waiting to just slap us, why would we go to God? We, we, we feel sorrow for our sin, but we confess, we repent because we have a merciful God. And repentance isn't just about, I know I did this in children's sermons, like repent and turning around, but it's not just turning from sin. That's a small part. 
It's a fundamental part. Repentance is not, the focus is not just about turning from sin, but it's about turning to God. Yes, it requires us to turn from sin, but what's even more important is that we are facing God. The good news of the gospel is not just that we don't go to hell. That's an important part. The good news of the gospel, because of what Christ did, is that we get to God, that we have God. He is the good news. Not that we just don't go to hell, but that we have him as our greatest treasure. Verse nine continues by saying, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. If I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Now, next week, Pastor Eugene is going to preach on the temptation, the stones that he's referencing right now, the, the, the impossible things that Satan's going to use to tempt. Um, but here, John the Baptist is pointing out to these religious leaders that don't focus on your heritage. It's not sufficient. Biological heritage will not save us. It affects us but it's not salvific. The change has to come here. It has to bear fruit. Verse 10 continues by telling us that even now, ax is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This horticultural image that um, John the Baptist um, is giving here, uh, we, we see the analogy of bearing fruit, and if there is no fruit, then it's going to be thrown into fire. Let me be honest, I, I don't like judgment. Um, I don't like the idea of judgment or hell. And you don't have to like it either. But one thing for sure, Bible teaches it, and Jesus preaches it, Quite a lot. Here in verse 10, a couple of verses later in verse 12, we see this being repeated. John continues by saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, mightier than I, and whose sandal I'm not even worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist knows, he knows who he is and who he's not. He's humble. A slave would be the one carrying a sandal and different uh, gospel. I'm not worthy enough to tie the, the strings of the sandal. He's saying he's not even worthy enough to be a slave of this Lord. Remember, John didn't fear people, but he knew who he was and he knew who Jesus was and who he was not. And he was a humble man, confident man, bold, but a humble man. And he continued by saying, his, the Lord's winnowing fork is at hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now uh, into an agricultural image, a farmer reaping the harvest is gonna be using the winnow fork to pick up the wheat and the chaff and just shake it up and separate the grain from the junk, the chaff. And there is this language, clear language, burning, fire, unquenchable fire. Back when I was young, I think I was sharing this during one of the meetings recently with some people. Um, 
I used to like playing with fire when I was little. And um, when I was growing up in the early days in South Korea, my grandparents had this big farm, all different sort of things. You know, my uncle or my aunt would separate uh, the grain from the chaff, and they'll use the chaff to start kindle fire, and they'll burn really well. So that's what they'll use, and then put sticks on it. And I used to play, play a lot with fire and got in trouble too. But there was this clear image of just unnecessary things that you can't consume that's going to be thrown out. It's not the first time that we see John the Baptist referencing this, and it's not the last time that the Gospel of Matthew brings it up. Um, chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus warns about the hell of fire. Matthew 7, 19, Jesus warns about false prophets talking about religious leaders, saying that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Sounds reminiscent of something we just heard. And fast forward, chapter 13, verse 40, this just as the weeds are gathered gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of age. Matthew 17, verse 15, 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angel. Judgment does await. Like I said, I don't like it. You don't have to like it. But we know that Jesus taught it, and he taught a lot. So now we need to take it seriously. We move to the final third section, John's baptism of Jesus. And here, in this context of John the Baptist preaching repentance because kingdom of heaven is near, people coming all over to be baptized by him. These, these are Jews who are going through what a Gentile would go through and they're convicted. It's in this context that Jesus, then Jesus came from Galilee all the way to the Jordan to John. Why? Because to be baptized by John. John knows. He knows that this is not supposed to be. If anything, I should be the one baptized by you, he says to Jesus. We see the humility of John the Baptist throughout this whole time. And now as Jesus is coming into scene, this Lord that John has been preparing, we see this Lord with this utter humility also. He's choosing to participate in this grand gathering of people repenting, admitting, confessing that their heritage is enough, but that they need to bear the fruit of repentance Jesus answers in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is fulfilling the plan that he made with God the Father. He's not saying that he is a sinner who needs to repent like all the other people. No. He's the one who came. He's the one who's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is identifying himself with the sinners, that he is one of us. Though sinless, that he is with us, that he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. He's about to get baptized, 
identifying himself with all the sinners, though not sinful, identifying that he is one of them. He didn't deserve, actually, that image of Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist, there's something wrong because it's a misrepresentation. He, he is not in need of a confession of sin. He's not one of those who, of like us who need to receive forgiveness. No. But he, as God Emmanuel, in starting this public ministry, shows everyone that he is one of us, God Emmanuel. Fast forward three years later, he will die a death that he came to die. And there's something wrong there too because only the worst heinous sinners would be the one crucified on the cross and Jesus was not sinful. He did not sin yet to take care of all this, the very purpose that he came to fulfill. He dies on the cross to show that he came to bring us to God. To those who confess, to those who admit the desperate need of forgiveness of sins, you know what Jesus does? He's the one who gets cut down and thrown into fire. He's the one who gets rejected to those who believe. To those who place their trust in Jesus, ready to receive because we are desperate, he's the one that is separated and thrown into fire so that we may be gathered and brought into the house of God. Though sinless, Jesus through and through lives out the reality of Emmanuel, God with us, that he is with us, that he stands with us, and he bore our sins. Harry Ironside said of Jesus this way, he who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized by John and that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life. As a church, we are gathered because Christ was the one, like an image of a chaff, thrown aside so that we may be gathered through his atoning work on the cross. I probably shared the story of um, Danish philosopher's uh, parable of the king and a maiden, which for me kind of really encapsulates the heart of God, Emmanuel, God with us. So on Kierkegaard tells a story of an unusual king who loves this humble maiden, and he doesn't know what to do. Um, he first thinks about, you know, going to the maiden's cottage to show up and see how she responds, but he's not sure if she ends up responding, whether she's responding to the glory and the majesty, the external things, because he's a king, or whether she really loves the king. So he considers, what if I disguise myself as a beggar and become, you know, and go to her? Well, then if she ends up loving this king, then the maiden wouldn't be loving the true person, because he's truly a king. He's just disguising us as a, as a beggar. Or what if he does the reverse? Elevate her status from being a maiden to uh, um, a noble status. No. He loves her for who she is. So there's only one solution. He sets aside his kingship and becomes one of them. Um, Becomes a beggar so that 
when he does go, how she responds to him will be an authentic response. God became something that he had never been before, not merely in appearance, became a human being because he loved us. He wanted to bring us to the Father by saving us from our sins. He became Emmanuel, God, with us. And when John was baptizing Jesus and Jesus was going through the river, immediately Jesus comes out of the water and behold, the heavens was open to him and, spirit, and they saw the Spirit of God descending in form of a dove coming on rest and resting on him. Remember John the Baptist talks about him baptizing with water, but the one coming after baptizing with spirit and fire. Now you have the spirit of God descending. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You have the heaven being open, affirming, confirming the very thing that he's been talking about. You have the Trinity being displayed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit present before this humble king. And finally, verse 17, we see the voice of, from the heaven speaking, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Back in 1887, I think none of us were alive at that time, Charles Spurgeon preached on this single verse, a long sermon, just on this single verse, verse 17, titled, A Great Sermon, by the greatest preacher. A great sermon by the greatest preacher, God the Father, preaching about God the Son in the presence of God the Holy Spirit. And the voice confirms and affirms the Son and his mission, why he came. I used to think that this verse was kind of a divine pep talk. I'm pleased with you. Do it. You got my back. But you know what? It's not like that, actually. If you're a Jew and you heard these words, this is what you'd be hearing. This is my son. It's a clear echoing of Psalm chapter 2. It's a coronation psalm. And Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 the psalmist says, this is my son, and continues later on, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule with etc., etc., etc." It's a coronation psalm being referenced here. When God the Father is speaking of God the Son, this is my son, you are my son, he is repeating the very words of Psalm 2, verse 7. It's not just words that he picked up from somewhere. And then, with him, I'm well, with him, I am well pleased. It comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1. These words come at the beginning of the prophecies of God's suffering servant who's going to atone for the sins of mankind. So when you have these two set of verses being put together into a single sentence, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, God is verifying the essential message of John the Baptist and what Jesus came to do. And you know what? This same set of words are repeated later on when Jesus is standing in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son 
my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, are the words that God the Father repeats. This is not a psychological pep talk. At the end, this is an affirmation and confirmation of the very task that Jesus came to fulfill. As a king, as a suffering servant, who came to die for your sins and mine. And it's in this context that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and Pastor Jean will preach about that. I want to show us a picture. This picture is it's an altarpiece by Matthias Grunwald. I had this printed and I just had it next to my desk for the longest time during my ministry years. For me, it just reminds me of the role and the purpose of John. In Latin, it's um, John 3.30. He must increase, right, right by his finger, he must increase, I must decrease. And John's main role is to point people to the Lord, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins. The gospel requires the crucifixion. The gospel requires us to accept that we are sinners. And the good news is only good news when we get that. Do you love Jesus? Are we pleased with Jesus? If we are, we ought to be pointing people to Christ, Christ of the cross and the empty tomb. My hope and prayers as we continue to delve deeper into the word, that perhaps we begin to see ourselves with greater humility, without the fear of man, and that we truly, with courage, share with others that we love, that we're surrounded by, whether our neighbors, our co-workers, our families and friends, what gospel is truly about and how the person of Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection is the only way to save us from the penalty of sin. Let's pray. Lord, teach us how to live this life of continual repentance that we come hungry, desperate, in seeking you and your forgiveness that is made possible through what you did on the cross. God, we are humbled by this servant, John, who didn't have any problem pointing others away from him to Christ, who did not fear people, but with fear of God in him, was boldly enabled to share, live out the calling that you had given him, a simple yet bold calling. Lord, may we have that humility and the commitment and fear of you instead of fear of man so that, Lord, we will be able to receive forgiveness that only you can give as we look to your son, the cross, and the empty tomb. We thank you that our work 
or your work actually of sanctification is something that you will finish because you begun it and you promised to finish it for your glory. So we look to you and we thank you. And in Christ's name we pray.